Hello and welcome to another episode of Research Radio, a podcast of the Economic and Political Weekly. I'm Johan, and today our guest is Dr. Atul Bharadwaj, a familiar name to the readers of EPW. Until recently, he was fellow at City University of London. Today we will be discussing two of his papers on contemporary capitalism and the fourth industrial revolution. The first paper titled Decay of Liberalism and Withering Away of the Left, Fourth Industrial Revolution, talks about how technology-driven revolution is fundamentally affecting the relationship between capital and labor, and how this change is driving right-wing populism across the globe, while the left seems to be left behind. The second paper, titled The Capital-Labor Rupture and the World Order, takes this further, arguing that cyber-capitalism is the driving force of the current changes in global political economy. It argues that with the help of these technologies, capitalism is breaking free from labor, and this is being supported by the right-wing conservatives who are undermining the educated middle class and polarizing the society to help reduce the population pool that will be entitled to universal basic income in the ensuing age of mass joblessness. Atul Bharatwaj, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much, Johan, and thanks to EPW for this initiative. Our pleasure, sir. Now, Dr. Bharatwaj, you talk about the shift in the financial center of power from Wall Street to Silicon Valley. What would you say have been the political implications of that shift? And do you think it played a role in the rise of the far right in the U.S.? You know, there is a discernible power shift within the capitalist order. The Silicon Valley has already sort of taken over the reins of power from the Wall Street. Uh, if you see the combined worth of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, is more than $5 trillion now. Now, these companies that are largely service providers, till now they were service providers, are now in the commanding positions. You have fintech companies, which are also almost banks now. Now, if you see, there was a similar power shift had occurred within the U.S. in the 1980s when the Wall Street billionaires replaced the oil manufacturing giants and the other, other manufacturing giants like Ford. Now, the U.S.'s large technology companies now wield similar levels of power that the Standard Oil had exercised about 100 years ago. So, this is the power shift that we are seeing at the moment within the capitalist order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in the age of mass production if you, of goods, we saw the capital needed more workers to maintain a sort of uninterrupted production cycle. They needed more and more working classes in the factories. And the working classes had to be appeased to some extent. In the 1930s, you saw the rise of the democratic socialism, liberalism, with communist tinge was introduced. Both the conservatives as well as the Democrats in America and elsewhere, by and large, aligned with the liberal international order that was erected. And then you had this power shift again in the 80s when the Wall Street began to take over the controls of power. If you see the first, uh, you know, from the 30s and the 40s, you saw the rise of liberalism, you saw the rise of 
uh, you know, Democrats in the world. But then this power shift in the 80s when Wall Street began to take over controls of power, the net result was deindustrialization. The production centers from the developed world were shifted to China and Southeast Asia and in the 90s to the East European countries, the poor ones, where cheap labor was available in abundance. Now this helped the capitalists circumvent the labor problems at home and focus more on managing global finance. So 1980s saw the decline of manufacturing and the growth of service economy. Now this ushered in the rise of the ideology of Reaganism. Those who believed in libertarian economics and to a large extent a muscular foreign policy. Reaganite conservatives in the 80s transformed American government politics and society and ushered in the political and social system which the Americans have inhabited till 2008 financial meltdown. So after the meltdown, the Wall Street began to lose its sheen and the trust of the people. The power gradually started moving towards the Silicon Valley quarters. And we've all seen the kind of politics which has accompanied the current power shift in the capitalist order. The alt-right, the paleo-conservatives have risen to unprecedented heights since 2010. Liberalism is of course demonized to an extent that even Reaganite conservatives are dis were discarded under the presidentship of Trump. So these are the changes which are happening. The Silicon Valley capitalists basically you know, uh, may have been uh, quick to eject former President Donald Trump from social media and online communities which were supporting him uh, for posting comments that incited violence. But all through, these giants uh, have supported this kind of the growth of this alt-right and the polarizations of the society. And that is largely happening because the Silicon Valley giants now control not just the banks, but also the media space. Mm -hmm. The new media platforms created by them have been extensively exploited to polarize the society on racial, ethical, and other lines. The question is, does the set of ruling elite in San Francisco Bay Area consider societal polarizations a necessity for the sustainability of its new empire? So that's my take. And that's why there is a kind of a support, uh, you know, tacit support, uh, which the alt-right has received over the past decade or so. Thank you, Dr. Bharatwaj. My next question is, how do you see the rise of China as a challenger to the US as the center of capitalism, helping to usher in the fourth industrial revolution? China has become a US problem, and largely because of technology now. Uh, in the emerging fields such as quantum computing and artificial intelligence, the US-China tech rivalry is, one could say, still in its early stages. But in industries including smartphones, drones, electric vehicles, Chinese ch companies have gained tremendous ground. And they're already sort of far ahead of the Americans. Uh, the, the sort of scale and the speed of China's technological advancement 
have raised huge concerns within Washington, largely over the implications for the United States overall economic competitiveness and its national security. Now, there, are also, there also has been a growing concern about the fragmentation of global technology sector because of the rise of China, Chinese technological you know, power as such. And now they are capable of you know, introducing sort of divergent standards and norms. And there is, you see, a large kind of a decoupling happening between the United States and China on, in the field of technology. China is surging forward in the development and export of technologies, which much like the US technologies could be employed for surveillance and possibly repression as well. The U.S. wants to stop the Chinese technologies from making inroads into building the digital infrastructure in the developing countries and also for preventing them from penetrating the international standard-setting bodies. So there is an increasing talk in the U.S. about technological decoupling with China. Because China is considered to be now in a position of being a peer competitor to the United States. So as a result, the new American techno-nationalism you see is focused exclusively on China. So that is the, uh, you know, met sort of uh, result of the rise of China. And uh, US is no longer uh, the sole uh, superpower in the technological arena because Chinese are investing in a big way in research and development. But do you see this uh, decoupling of the US with China as contributing to uh, the ushering in of the fourth industrial revolution in the US as well? Meaning having more uh, technology-based production as compared to labor production? Oh, of course, of course. You know, that is one of the reasons that, you know, there is already a talk about uh, sort of re-industrializing the West. The deindustrialization process, which, you know, kick-started sometimes in late 70s, uh, when the West started moving their industries away, uh, that process seems to be uh, coming to some sort of, you know, there is some sort of a change in that deindustrialization because the new technologies are now offering uh, the West, uh, the so-called industrialized West, uh, with, uh, you know, with wherewithal to basically start manufacturing again. Of course, with less labor and relying more on the new age technologies. I'll move on to my next question, which is in both your papers, you argue that after the fourth industrial revolution, capital is now breaking itself free from labor and that this will create joblessness and dependence on universal basic income from which many will be excluded. But new technologies have conventionally been accompanied by concerns of you know, machines and robots, etc., stealing workers' jobs. How is this different in Fourth, the fourth industrial revolution technology. Hmm. 
you know the industrial revolution 4.0 is different from the previous industrial revolution in terms of the smart robots 3d three-dimensional printers artificial intelligence big data transfers and machine learning technologies which have emerged now these technologies have already eaten into the jobs and are likely to do so even more in the coming future you know, we, uh, it's often said that, you know, look, if Uber came in, but Uber has created so many jobs in terms of giving jobs to drivers. But you need to realize that we are now moving beyond Uberization. You know, these jobs, the gig economy jobs are going to disappear fast. We've already reached that stage. The driverless cars are already plying on the roads in China and other rich countries. Cars and other transportation, you know, trucks. Even uh, pilotless drones, as you know, are very common now. Also being used in, uh, you know, warfare and also in the civilian areas commonly. And so we see this in the coming decades, Uber drivers and even delivery boys are going to lose their jobs. As more autonomous vehicles begin to be employed by the industry and by the retail chains. While the earlier technologies impacted job markets in manufacturing and in agriculture sector, if you see the biggest change this time is that the industrial revolution, this new industrial revolution is making even service sector jobless. So you can imagine if all three sectors of the economy are losing jobs, then where we are heading. So if you don't have jobs in all three sectors, if you don't have jobs for the middle classes, you know, the kind of digital technology, the way we are using digital money now, it makes a lot of jobs within the bank redundant. I remember, you know, in uh, my father was in RBI uh, and uh, in 89, 90, when the computers were introduced into the banking, uh, Reserve Bank of India, uh, they had about 33, 35 odd thousand employees in Reserve Bank of India, all over India. But now, after so many years of computerization, you know, the, the RBI has only about 1100 employees. So there has been an erosion in the job market and which will happen, uh, you know, which will, the, which will uh, the impact of which is going to be felt more and more in the coming decade. And there are no new jobs which are going to be created. That is, you know, when we moved from agriculture to industries, to factories, uh, you know, the agriculturist moved to factories, worked in the factories. The farmers started working in the factories. Now we are sort of looking at uh, at a scenario where, uh, you know, even service sector jobs are disappearing fast. So that is uh, the uh, is likely to cause a kind of a joblessness in the society in the coming decades and reliance more on universal basic income by the governments. There would be some who would say that this 
is not necessarily a bad thing you know uh, i mean how would you respond to technological optimists who see this joblessness as simply the growing pains as technology takes on the grunt work and leaves humans free for more creative pursuits or as marx might put it to do one thing today and another tomorrow to hunt in the morning and fish in the afternoon dear cattle in the evening criticize after dinner and that's a beautiful scenario <laughs> you know and it's it's a brilliant perspective you know wage slavery as one would say must end you know why should we continue to slog for wages mm-hmm. uh, the man human beings need to have you know greater free time to pursue art but the basic issue is uh, are we heading towards removing the kind of inequalities where maximum number of human beings would be able to pursue art maximum number of people would have the leisure or are we moving towards a society where even creative jobs would be usurped by machines you know you see a lot of things happening uh, as we were discussing the other day that even creative jobs are being done by computers you know cover designs of the books and uh, you know even paintings are being done by by computers now by machines so how much of cre- even poetry can be created by computers now so where does that leave the scope for creativity also uh, in the coming days yet you know uh, these are the questions that we need to grapple with and this is the reality that is facing us and uh, the political s- uh, studies must uh, you know engage with these issues more and more that's what how is the society going to you know shape up uh, social sciences need to work a little bit more on these issues and social science for some reason has not been very deep engaging with these sorts of issues uh, over the last few years going back to the question of universal basic income in your papers you mention it in a way that seems to suggest that it is you know an inevitable remedy to the resulting joblessness but why would capitalism want to keep these unproductive people around anyway look i'm not saying that universal basic income is the only remedy or it is the best remedy available we need to explore more to find a better solution to the problems of joblessness that we are going to confront more and more in the coming years mm-hmm. now that is exactly the reason the silicon valley raj will support right wing ideologies based on exclusion and polarization the idea is to delegitimize maximum number of people and render them ineligible for receiving the universal basic income you know in india we are very familiar with the the the, the way the caste hierarchies were created and these hierarchies caste hierarchies determined who were actually entitled to draw water from the village well mm-hmm. only the upper caste was allowed to draw water from the well uh, from the well the others the lower caste had to rely on reaching the river to fetch water for themselves mm-hmm. so this is as resources reduce and there is a greater 
fight for the resources the capitalism would like to reduce the number of people eligible to receive support and since capitalism does no longer will require uh, labor the, since there is a rupture between the capital and the labor therefore the need to exclude more and more people would be felt to maximize profits after all one of the aims of capitalism is to maximize profits and if they were to distribute their profits through universal basic income schemes to all and sundry uh, you know it really doesn't uh, you know uh, augur well for capitalism itself <laughs> so they would definitely try the capitalist elite would definitely try to restrict the numbers who can be given uh, this kind of uh, support in your paper you mentioned that the 21st century surveillance capitalism with the far right as its political hitman is likely to be more lethal and ruthless could it be more ruthless than the kind of exploitation that happened in the factories of the first industrial revolution what does that say about the movement of the dialectic through time and if you see actually the cyber capitalism is more equipped to keep masses under surveillance technologies now help big companies and even the state to control and even to peep into people's bedroom and listen to all their conversations so we see this capital labor rupture is absolutely working to the advantage of the former a person you see can be deprived of digital money at any given time if the state intends to punish him or the company intends to punish him they can deprive him of the money and therefore thereby the means to procure food so a person can be rendered pauper in no seconds with no avenues to procure food his movements can be monitored are monitored in fact even now so the torture this time if you see could be less physical and more psychological therefore you see that the discourse today is about degrowth depopulation and deglobalization mm-hmm. so what techniques would be employed in the future to achieve depopulation objectives only time will tell all one can say is hopefully there will be less ruthless uh, that's all mm-hmm. one could say at this moment mm-hmm. in comparison to what uh, you know uh, in comparison to the way the people are killed Uh, in wars mm-hmm. uh, so will they be less lethal than that uh, you know it's 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 anybody's guess you make an interesting point about how liberalism has been the kryptonite of the left could you elaborate a bit more on this specifically with regard to the indian context the left liberal relationship has was has hinged on politics of convenience uh, for the liberal speaking socialism was a part of a strategy to keep communist tendencies at bay 
you know as i've written in my paper the liberal heart was always anchored in individualism and found capitalism more acceptable than communism the sort of left liberal merger was a byproduct of great depression of the 1930s the relationship resulted in the emergence of a new political species during that period and in the capitalist world the species identified itself as progressives new dealers uh, they were more like the british fabians of the early 20th century a peculiar thing happened the new dealers was that they avoided the word socialism and this was a part of their strategy the deception of never calling socialism by its right name was the integral part of the fabian political ideology and you take the example of jawaharlal nehru who was a new dealer and he is wrongly identified as a communist sympathizer he, nehru added an ik to socialist in his doctrine of socialistic pattern of society so nehru was actually a big, big myth maker you know he excelled in the political use of ambiguity adding a socialist tinge to liberalism was essential to save capitalism in those times of course because of the great depression the capitalism was in deep crisis the empires were falling apart and coupled with that the communism in soviet union the success of soviet communism was making its impact in the 30s So the whole idea was that the capitalism could not allow communism to be the sole torchbearer of the masses of the world. Therefore Franklin D Roosevelt's New Deal advocated government planning and intervention in businesses. So capitalism basically just could not allow communists to monopolize trade unions and determine the engines of global political economy. It is largely for this reason that the rhetoric of socialism came in handy. By stealing the socialist argument, the the, the capitalists could deprive the left of the possibility of political success. It also made the Anglo-American capitalism look more acceptable. So the Nehru the father of the left liberalism in India employed this Roosevelt techniques to reform the Indian communist movement. He claimed to be a socialist and a friend of Soviet Union. But by actually doing this he defanged the Indian communists. And uh, you know uh, and which I something which I mentioned in a paper Nehru explained his policy on tackling the Indian communist uh, and while speaking to the heads of mission in 1952 uh, he said and i quote here our foreign policy has helped us internally as well in that it has completely confused the communist party of india in view of the appreciation shown by soviet leaders of our foreign policy 
Indian communists find it difficult to criticize the government. The stature India has gained abroad has given the common man a certain pride in India. CPI, that is the Communist Party of India, therefore finds it difficult to undermine the, reli the reliance the common man places in the government. So now this was the kind of... Uh, so Nehru's association with Soviet Union was more tactical rather than strategic. Because he wanted to achieve these internal political gains. And, you know, elaborating further on Nehru's, he, Nehru informed his envoys while speaking to them that our intelligence services have to watch communist activity. Though from outside there has been very little, in fact, the Indian communists have been told privately not to embarrass our government. The publicly expressed appreciation of Indian government is another way of making it difficult for the Communist Party of India to embarrass the government. So, his, his, uh, so Nehru is trying to explain how you know, his socialism, how his association with the Soviet Union is sort of rendering the Communist Party of India sort of rudderless. Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, groping in dark about whether to oppose Nehru or to support him. Mm -hmm. So all that they end up doing is supporting him. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the kind of, uh, you know, then again, as, uh, you know, uh, for the sake of survival, uh, the communists also, uh, you know, conjoined with the liberals. And, uh, you know, they had done that in the 30s and later as uh, things advanced, uh, progressed further. Uh, the 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 uh, the capitalists, uh, the communists, as well as the liberals, uh, you know, started looking alike. Mm -hmm. And after the end of the Cold War, uh, the liberals, of course, uh, you know, joined the neoliberal bandwagon, whereas the communists, uh, you know, uh, stuck to uh, fighting for the civil liberties. So that's what has actually, uh, you know, sort of happened, as per my understanding. Mm -hmm. So finally, my last question is that, you know, while I was reading your earlier paper, it seemed to me that it was less hopeful for the left than the later one. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And if so, what changed? <laughs> you know, left, of course, is in doldrums. Uh, I continue to be less sanguine about its rise because I don't think the left has started engaging with the changes which are underway in our society. And largely the technological changes which are underway in the society and how the society is being impacted by them. But I do wish and hope that the left politics will try and grapple more with the impact of disappearance of working classes from the factories rather than merely opposing technology. You know, the question that you asked as to what people are going to be doing, you know, it would be beneficial for the people to uh, uh, to be to be relieved of wage slavery. Yes, you know, uh, these are the questions which uh, need to be asked by the left. Who will manage technology? Uh, will Should the companies be allowed to manage such massive technologies? Uh, and what role can the left play in in making these technologies more 
people friendly so i feel there is a role for the left the left has to wake up and begin to uh, you know appreciate its role in the new society rather than just you know opposing uh, technology and talking about uh, privacy and other thing privacy is passe now it's gone mm-hmm. it's very difficult to get it back mm-hmm. so the human beings are have moved into a new industrial era where they're going there's going to be greater surveillance of human beings so how basically we need to engage with this to the benefit of the people is the questions that the left must engage with that's all thank you so much dr bharatwaj it has been a pleasure talking with you and thank you again for joining us thank you so much shohan thank you You can find links to the articles mentioned in today's episode in the episode show notes. To experience all that Economic and Political Weekly has to offer, please head over to epw.in and subscribe today. Bye-bye and see you next time on Research Radio.